Recording. Recording in progress. Okay. So our topic for tonight is uh, French anti-Semitism and the Dreyfus Affair. So last time we discussed the origins of the anti-Semitic movement with Wilhelm Maren in Germany. But as I said, it wasn't only in Germany that formal anti-Semitism became a popular matter in the 1870s, 1880s. It was also true in France and Austria and a few other places. France, the Jews had been emancipated in 1791, and although there had been some troubles points in the Napoleonic era uh, with uh, some laws restricting their emancipation in 1808, those were allowed to lapse in 1818, and Jews made themselves part of society uh, to the utmost. It helped that, on the whole, Jews in France were not especially religious and didn't really stand out as a distinct cultural entity the way they did in other parts of Europe. They were also very few in number. Even by the late 1880s, there were only 75,000 Jews in France out of a population of 39 million. That's quite different from what it was in Germany, where there were over a half a million, maybe 700,000 uh, high point. So the smaller numbers, more integrated, less overtly Jewish, uh, this makes the possibility of anti-Semitism you know, less likely, but not impossible. And of course, someone's always free to be a bigot. And we will find that in the late part, latter part of the century, those Jew haters will emerge with new ideas, some old ideas, but also some new ideas. So uh, when Germany annexed Alsace-Lorraine in 1871, after the Franco-Prussian War, the question for the Jews of Alsace was, well, what do we do now? Do we become German citizens or do we move to the French interior? The, on the one hand, they were really Yekis by nature. So Jewishly speaking, they were more Germanic, but they had benefited from French citizenship for the last three generations. And although Germany too would be emancipating its Jews, they had become patriotic French nationals, or at least many of them had. And so one third of all Alsatian Jews moved to the French interior uh, at the moment of the annexation in 1871. Uh, no, no, they were French citizens who were moving to other parts of France when the, the, the area of their home was no longer part of France. Okay, now in 1886, Edouard Ramon wrote La France Juive, Jewish France. It was a two-volume collection of what we might say are anti-Semitic rumors, myths, insinuation, innuendo, all that sort of good stuff. And he identifies three types of anti-Semitism, and he endorses all three, of course. The first is the racialist variety. So here we get to the Wilhelm Marr type anti-Semitism, that there is a chiluk, there is a distinction to be drawn between Aryans, European Aryans on the one hand, and Jewish non-Aryan on the other. Another type of anti-Semitism that he's endorsing is economic anti-Semitism, that the Jews are too much associated with capitalism. Here's the irony. There are others who would say Jews are associated with, with uh, you know, socialism and Marxism. But here he's saying, no, they're associated with capitalism, much to the, to the detriment of the French state. And lastly, he invokes religious anti-Semitism, accusing the Jews of being Christ killers and all the old Catholic tripe. Okay. In 1889... Uh, he found he founded the Anti-Semitic League of France, which is like sort of the, the junior partner of the League of Anti-Semites of Germany. His book, 
sold 100,000 copies in its first year and was reprinted over 200 times over the next 25 years. Now, what does that tell you about the potential for anti-Semitic propaganda in France? It's very great. In other words, even if there hadn't been up until that point a well-organized anti-Semitic movement, the public at large was able to be won over, at least a significant part of that public, was receptive to these kinds of ideas. So you could see the effect of the internet uh-huh. on anti-Semitic and uh, extremist views. Yes, absolutely. Because if a written word was that successful. Uh, yeah. When the written word is successful, it shows you two things. One, people are reading, which we can't always take for granted. Um, and that, well, the other thing is, it can be commercially successful because everybody wants a copy. doesn't always mean that they're reading it. So he claimed that he was not opposed to Judaism as a religion, but only to the Semitic race. This is a standard uh, line that the modern anti-Semite will use. To be honest, it had been around even before the 1870s and 1880s. It had been around already since the 1700s that those who wanted to move past classical medieval Christian anti-Judaism would say, I'm not against the religion of Judaism, I'm against the the body of the Jew, the, the race of the Jews. He regarded the Jews as peculiar, different from all other human beings. Now, notice human beings. It wasn't just a matter of they don't fit into France, but rather that they're different from all other human beings. And he said they could never be real citizens because they would never act in the best interests of France. Of course, had he been a German, he could have made the same argument about not in the best interests of Germany or pick your nation, you could fill in the blank. Right, yeah. So he founded a newspaper in 1892, La Parole Libre, I don't know if I pronounced it right, the free word. And he accused Jewish military officers of treason. So you see where this is headed. We're talking about Dreyfus tonight, but even before... Dreyfus is charged with anything. The idea that Jewish military officers are suspect is one of the top items on the propaganda list of those who hate the Jews. Well, you could argue that there was some sort of a stab in the back that uh, so there was a fifth column and that this uh, takeover wouldn't have happened if not for someone subverting the cause. Sure. Okay, now the motto of the newspaper was France for the French. But who are the real French? Well, we get to decide. You don't get to decide. Articles were written by the Marquis de Moray, who was a wealthy anti-Semite. The question for the Jews at that time was, how seriously do we take this anti-Semitic propaganda? Do we ignore it and consider it like a fringe matter that best left undiscussed and untouched? Or must it be confronted vigorously, lest it get out of hand and metastasize? So at first, Jews preferred to ignore the attacks, thinking that it was prudent to remain silent. But not everyone agreed. Sadly, for this person in particular, Captain Armand Mayer decided to, ch- uh, to challenge Moray to a duel. And he lost. Moray won because he was very proficient in dueling. I guess he had annoyed a lot of people over the years and consistently defeated his adversaries, and Meyer died. He was mortally wounded in the duel. But what's fascinating is 
that the reaction of the general public to Captain Mayer being killed in a duel was to be angry about it. They took up the cudgels of a patriotic officer who felt offended at personal attack and had died for, the, for you know died for the cause. They were outraged. So Drummond and Moray actually had to issue an apology in the next issue of their newspaper, saying that they they regret the death of a patriotic human being. Um, so that was 1892. Right. But the, but the tide was turning. The tide was turning. And by 1894, the public was ready to condemn Captain Alfred Dreyfus. So you know, this case, this affair, and it doesn't become an affair until really two, year, two or three years after the initial trial. Uh, an affair captures the imagination of the public. At first, it did, but not to the great extent it would a few years going on. And it lasted for a full 12 years, 1894 to 1906. Um, but uh, in the beginning, the public was willing to hear out the supposed evidence, thought it compelling, and said guilty. And public opinion really mattered. Unlike what the law should be, where public opinion doesn't matter and the facts of the case will decide guilt or innocence, in the Dreyfus affair, public opinion means a whole lot. Okay, what happened? What's the origin of the Dreyfus affair? So a French worker at the German embassy in Paris found a torn up memo of French military secrets that the author was willing to sell to Germany. So bear in mind that France and Germany are historic rivals and had just been at war with each other two and a half decades prior. And the possibility of a war flaring up was a a real concern that it could happen at any moment. And that's an ongoing theme throughout the Dreyfus affair, that we could be at war with Germany any moment. Um, Who was this French cleaning lady working in the German embassy in Paris? So the truth is, she wasn't just some French cleaning lady. She was working with French intelligence and they placed her in a job in the German embassy, Bedavka, to find these sorts of things. Right. So, uh, so she was trained to look for this kind of stuff. Okay, now the assumption was that the author must have worked for the general staff of the French military because of the level of knowledge about certain munitions that were being discussed in the memo. How do you find the guilty party? Well, Process of elimination. Who are the potentially guilty people? Let's check them off one at a time. That couldn't have been this guy, couldn't have been this guy, couldn't have been this guy. Well, must have been Alfred Dreyfus, Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Was he the only Jew on the general staff? Uh, I believe he was not the only Jew on the general staff. Uh, there, well, there were, there were 300 Jewish officers total and 10 Jewish generals. Was he the only one of the general staff? I'm not sure. I believe he was not. Okay. Now, the evidence, so the evidence was flimsy or non-existent. But there was a real guilty party. And we're going to get to who it was and what happened to that individual. Why did the accusation, or rather, how did the accusation against Dreyfus not fit the profile? In, in, in the analysis at the time, and in the historiography after the fact, the criticism of the French military authorities is that this never made any sense. 
So why did that not make sense? A few reasons. Number one, Dreyfus had an excellent military record. Okay, he had been in the army a while, never done anything wrong, didn't have any demerits on his on, on, on his permanent record card. Also, he had no apparent motive. It's not as though there had ever been a prior accusation of him associating with Germany or that he had anything to gain materially or otherwise from, from doing this, uh, from selling out to Germany. He was, his lifelong dream had been to become a French military officer ever since he was a child. He played by the rules. He never took chances or cut corners. So he was known as a guy played by the books. And he was independently wealthy. So the, there was an absence of a financial motive. His father was an industrialist, and his father-in-law was a diamond merchant. He was a French patriot who had left Alsace as a kid to avoid losing his French citizenship. So all these are factors which say, why would he do it? He wouldn't have done it. Now, what are the factors that say, ah, guilty as sin, without direct evidence? Number one, Jewish. But we'll see that he didn't think at first that, that was the, the primary factor. Others would say Alsatian. No, no, he considered himself a Jew. He wasn't uh, religious in the least, uh, you know, f- fully acculturated. But he was a Jew. He was a Jew. A Jew. Okay. No, 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 no. Didn't have to. So, but the Alsatian factor played a role. You know, it was very tempting or very easy to say, well, he comes from that part of the country, which is no longer part of our country. It's now Germany. Maybe he's really uh, loyal to the other team. Um, now, his, his lawyers did a wonderful job, but going to shelf him, okay? So he was arrested on uh, October 15th, 1894. And at first... Dreyfus himself did not think that his arrest was because he was a Jew. And as I mentioned, there were plenty of Jewish generals and Jewish officers. So as far as he's concerned, the French military doesn't have an anti-Semitism problem. He'll find out shortly that it does, but in the moment, he didn't think so. He thought it was just a case of mistaken identity. You know, they got the wrong guy. And they did get the wrong guy. But despite having gotten the wrong guy, they wanted to double down on the wrong guy. Okay. So at first, the intention was, um, don't leak the charges. Don't let the public know that a general staff officer is accused of uh, selling out to the Germans. Why? Because if the public finds out, then we could be at war with Germany in an instance. However, who leaks the story? Drummond's newspaper releases it on November 1st, 1894. So only about two and a half weeks after the arrest. And even though it was supposed to be a sealed case, all of a sudden it breaks out as a public spectacle. Drummond's newspaper refers to Alfred Dreyfus as Judas Iscariot. Okay, he's Judas who sold out Jesus. All right, so Alfred Dreyfus is the Jew who sells out France. The paper also falsely claimed that Dreyfus confessed. This would go a long way into convincing much of the general public that Dreyfus was really guilty. Oh, after he confessed, you know, it wasn't true. Not in the least. Dreyfus never confessed, even on the, on, on the most horrific torture and with plenty of opportunity, always refused. Um, 
by no by late November, most of France thought that Dreyfus was guilty. Only his family and his close circle of friends continued to think otherwise. Okay. Now, not necessarily, but, but what they thought, we don't really know. Now, the defense was strong at trial, but the prosecution pulled a few stunts towards the end. Now, Eli, you, you asked in the chat, did he act, have access to the info? The answer is to the original info in the, in the, in the memo uh, that was found in the embassy, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Where he doesn't have access to the information is at his trial. The uh, the, fabric, the fabricated evidence that even his lawyers are not given uh, are not privy to. So what happened? There were two stunts pulled at the end of the trial. The first one was that an intelligence officer named Hubert Henry testified that a highly reliable secret informant confirmed Dreyfus's guilt. Highly reliable secret informant. Okay, so the defense said, well. Listen, you have to identify who this person is so we can cross-examine them uh, to the veracity of whatever this claim. However, Henry refused to identify who it was, saying it could lead to war. Again, the same old line. Well, we could be at war with Germany tomorrow if this trial blows out of proportion and, and, and goes in directions that we can't control. The court was at a loss for what to do. Do they accept this guy say so? without any form of confirmation. So the court decided to accept Henry's sworn testimony if he would swear on his honor. And Hubert Henry uh, stared right at a picture of Jesus on the wall and swore on his own honor that I'm telling the truth. The, 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 the court was impressed with his total sincerity, quote unquote. On the last day of the trial, the defense minister and General uh, uh, Mercier gave the judges a sealed dossier, with which supposedly had four pieces of incriminating evidence. The defense lawyers again said, we'd like to see the contents of this dossier, to which the court responded, well, we can't do that without exposing uh, sources and methods. Uh, French intelligence officers can be put in mortal danger and harm for their life if we let you look at this. So therefore, boo-hoo, you can't see it. All right, well, with these two stunts pulled at the end of the trial, it was almost a foregone conclusion that Dreyfus would be declared guilty. And the seven judges who served as both jury and judge on this uh, panel unanimously found Dreyfus guilty of treason. So what's the penalty for treason? No, it's not. So, okay, good. So the death penalty for political crimes was outlawed in France in 1848. In the revolutionary year of 1848, it was outlawed. France actually has funny laws like that. Remember, we, we, had, we had another class about, um, you know, uh, uh, Ernst von Rath and, and Herschel Grinspan and the, and the Kristallnacht episode, where I told you that in France, a crime of passion was not a death penalty case because the, the French, as great you know romance types and lovers, uh, say of crime of passion, we're not going to kill you. You know, we understand you're you're, you're, you're very hot headed. Okay, so political crimes also you don't you don't get killed. What's the punishment? He was sentenced to degradation of his military stripes in a formal ceremony, which I'll describe in a moment, and deportation, um, where he would be imprisoned for life 
on Devil's Island off the coast of South America. So the degradation ceremony took place in the courtyard of the French Military Academy. There were 4,000 military cadets and officers present, plus a whole lot of other spectators and the press, the, the, the media in the gallery. What happened? So an officer approaches, a senior officer approaches him, his badges are ripped off, his insignias are ripped off, the buttons on his shirt, on his jacket are ripped off, and his sword was broken in half. I always wondered, how do you break a sword if it's made out of metal? But then again, if Bo Jackson could go on his knee and break a bat, then I guess some Frenchman could break a sword. Okay. Well, they make a hachrazan announcement that, quote, Alfred Dreyfus, you are unworthy to bear arms. In the name of the French people, we degrade you. What was Dreyfus doing the whole time? The whole time he was shouting, you have an innocent man, innocent man, innocent man. Um, so he preserved his dignity, even in a moment of great indignity. All right. So once he, he was sent to, to jail for about, about a month and then shipped off across the, the pond and went to Devil's Island, where he would stay uh, from the beginning of 1895 up until the middle of 1899. While he was there, he suffered terribly. Uh, his health took a steep decline. He had fevers, which he never really recovered from. His body shrunk. He lost a lot of weight. There was a, a two-month stretch where he was tied to his bed with his arms and legs shackled. Uh, he, he lived in a 13-foot by 13-foot hut. He was the only prisoner on the island. The only ones there were him and his, his, uh, uh, the, the wardens of, of his incarceration, uh, the guards. So it was a real tough situation. His letters were, were censored. He couldn't really communicate freely with his wife. Bad stuff, very bad stuff. Okay, so who becomes his great advocate once Alfred himself is no longer on the scene? The answer is his brother, his brother, Matthew. Matthew Dreyfus kept working for Alfred's exoneration, but he had a little bit of a problem. Problem was, he was reluctant to work publicly, lest his efforts stir up anti-Semitic feelings. Remember, Dreyfus has been convicted. As far as everyone's concerned, or almost everyone, the guy's guilty of sin. To work on his behalf, even if you're a mishpacha, a family member, means that, oh, you're working for a traitor. So the concern is, if this uh, advocacy comes to public light, Jews could suffer an anti-Semitic backlash, and they would, by the way. There'll be tremendous riots in 1898. Okay, so when he met with public officials, he was accused of bribery. And when he looked for new evidence, he was accused of trying to find a patsy. So it's a lose-lose situation. No matter what he does, the accusation is the, the worst possible accusation. You're bribing them, you're looking for a scapegoat, the, your brother's guilty. Just give it up already. Jewish guy to go through all this. I don't know that we're not missing anything. There's no from cut here. Okay. So things changed in 1896. Uh, the matter had basically fallen out of uh, public view from roughly January of 1895 until the summer of 1896. About a year and a half, things were quiet. Then things flare up again. What happened? So Colonel George Picard 
became the head of military intelligence. And he noticed something quite disturbing. He noticed that military secrets were still being sent to Germany, despite the fact that the supposed, supposed traitor, the culprit of the original memo, was on Devil's Island across the ocean. So it must not have been Dreyfus. It must have been somebody else who we haven't caught yet. And who is it? Got to find out. Well, uh, so it, it's unclear exactly how military intelligence knew this, but they had their ways. The Germans clearly were, were aware of, of nuggets of information that they could only have known if an insider revealed it to them. So he found the real culprit. It was Major Wells and Esterhazy. Now, when the name like Esterhazy, what does that tell you? No. Germanic uh, name, not really a French-sounding name. So yeah, he came from those parts in eastern France that were no longer France, which were now Germany and had historically been Germanic. So he was a gambler and a known con artist. So he's a bad apple. A guy with, if a Dreyfus was a la Milis, this guy was a la Chisreinus, Okay. Now Picard was an unlikely champion of justice for a Jew. Why do I say that? Because he was a conservative Catholic from Alsace, and he was worried about being tricked by, um, did they name Captain Picard on Star Trek after Colonel Picard? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that was the T. Yeah, that's the D. Okay, so uh, Picard was afraid that the devious Dreyfus family was going to try to trick him. Meaning, he knows that Esterhazy is, is a bad apple, and he thinks he's got him dead to rights. And that seems to exonerate Dreyfus. But still, as a conservative Catholic, who's not a, a, friend of, a friend of Jews, he's worried the Dreyfus family is going to try to pull a stunt and try to you know abuse my trust or whatever it is. So he refused to meet the family. Matthew Dreyfus is pushing for, for his brother's exoneration and his acquittal. And this guy, who is beginning to know the truth, doesn't want to speak to them. Okay. He feared damage to his own career. And with good reason, he would get arrested and go to jail eventually uh, over all this. So still, he put forth his report about Esterhaz. The superiors refused to accept it. Why? because the army did not want to admit that they made a mistake. People don't like to be embarrassed and admit fault. So they would prefer to double down on an error rather than go in the right direction. And after all, and after all, the only victim of the matter was a Jew. So if you combine the fact that, well, we really don't care this guy's suffering because we don't give a damn about Jews, and we don't want to embarrass ourselves over a, a tremendous blunder in a, in a public case. So bury the whole thing. Bury the yeah, whole thing. Right, right. So the army, wanting to get rid of George Picard because he's now a troublemaker, sends him to North Africa to keep him away from uh, the action. Still, the info that he had collected was leaked to a member of parliament. And the word got out. Anti-Semitic types um, thought or claimed 
that the Jews had found their patsy in Esther Hatzi and had bribed Picard to say whatever it is that he said. So we have a situation here where no matter how much evidence emerges that would exonerate the, the, the Jew, it is always seen as suspect as though it was purchased by the Jewish community or the family of the, uh, uh, of the criminal in order to achieve their preferred outcome. It's never assumed to be the emiss, the truth. Okay. Well, the army has a problem on its hands. What do you do with Esterhazy? They don't really like him, and they probably know that he's uh, guilty, but they don't want him convicted. Because if he's convicted, then what do they do with Dreyfus? Let him off a devil's island? Okay, so the goal that the army had was to separate out the two trials, the two cases. Dreyfus could be guilty, and Esther Hatzi could be guilty or could not be guilty. But the best thing that they could do was put the guy on trial so that he could be uh, acquitted. And then you'll say, well, we had a trial and he was acquitted. So that's exactly what they do. There is a brief trial of Esther Hatzi on January 10th, 1898, and he was found not guilty. And when he left the courtroom, thousands of people greeted him with cheers and for he's a jolly good fellow type thing, because the country was moving in a progressively anti-Semitic direction. So they don't want to think that Esterhazy is guilty. They like the idea that Dreyfus was the bad actor. Okay. But three days later, that's where things go crazy. And Emil Zola emerges on the scene. On January 13th, 1898, Emil Zola publishes a letter to the president of France. Now, it's not really a letter to the president of France. It's like an op-ed piece in a newspaper, but it runs 4,500 words and is a retelling of the whole story in significant detail. It's, you know, normally a newspaper story is 500 words at most. This was a long arichus uh, to give people a full recounting and retelling of what happened. The title of the article was Jacques Hughes, uh, I accuse. And that leads to uh, the you know, satirical cartoons that have the Emil Zola day spa with the jacuzzi, okay? Um, and he accused the army and the government of a conspiracy to convict Alfred Dreyfus. That's a tremendous accusation to level against the government in a country that doesn't really have freedom of speech. France has very... Um, uh, convenient libel laws that allow the, the plaintiff to go after anybody for saying almost anything. So this newspaper, the Jacques Hughes, sold 200,000 copies in Paris alone. Everybody's reading it. It's the talk of the town. So why did the newspaper? It was a newspaper that was favorable towards, well, it was it was a Republican newspaper as opposed to a conservative monarchical newspaper. Uh, on the political side of the spectrum, it favored that view. So the government... I think, but I think the naturalists at the time yeah. were the ones who exposed the, the evil... The evils. Of the, of, of the industrialization. Yeah, and sure. sort of thing. So this really fell into... This fell into... Yeah, Zola was not a typical defender of the Jews. You, uh, in his novels... There were crude characteriz characterizations of Jews, caricatures, 
Gisola was not a, a friend of the Jews, generally speaking. He defended Dreyfus because he didn't like military corruption, government corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just as Edward Rumont feared a Jewish conspiracy, so did Zola fear a military conspiracy by fanatical Catholics. So the, the fanatical monarchical Catholics on one side of the spectrum, the Republican types on the other, who believe in a, in a free republic and want people to play fair and by the rules. So Zola is out to get those who are of the old guard. Now, Zola draws thousands of people into this controversy who previously were indifferent to it. Now, you can't, uh, you can't get away from it, so to speak. But I want to show you a political cartoon that explains how pervasive the discussions of the Dreyfus case had reached at that point. So where is it? Ah. So here you have, for those keeping the score at home, so I don't, you really can't see it too good, but on the top, you have a, a family, an extended family at a dinner table where it says, no talking about the Dreyfus affair. And on the bottom, you have a Royal Rumble, an utter melee, a Donnybrook, a brouhaha. And it says they talked about it. So what was the point of that cartoon? The point was to say that you really couldn't pinpoint which sec- segments, demographic sectors of society would be Dreyfusards and which would be anti-Dreyfusards. Yes, you could probably roughly say the conservative Catholics would hate Dreyfus because they were bigoted and hate Jews, and the more liberals, you know, maybe would be pro-Dreyfusards. But actually, at every family dinner table, there was a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. Okay, like, kind of like 2020 election in America. Every household could have its bregas and its machlokas over the, you know, the subject, de, de, you know, de jour. Okay. No, Dreyfus knows nothing about this. Dreyfus thinks he was just convicted and sent off to the gulag. All right, you know, and he, he really knows zero about the importance that his case and he personally plays in French affairs. He will find out about it only upon his return for a second trial in 1899. So he goes four and a half years oblivious to the fact that he's like the most famous person in the country. Okay, now. Uh, okay. Anti-Semitic riots break out all over France. So the Zola article uh, and the lawsuit that the government then uh, uh, files against him leads to a real anti-Semitic outburst. There, there are attacks on Jewish homes. Huh? No, no, no. There are attacks on Jewish homes, Jewish businesses, synagogues. I don't believe anybody was killed in these riots at that time, but there was significant injuries and loss of property. In 70 cities, this occurred. In some places, it was spontaneous. But in other places, it wasn't so spontaneous. It was, hey, look, they're doing it over there. Why don't we do some of it here, too? Um, The Dreyfusards versus the anti-Dreyfusards. The supporters of Dreyfus wanted a new trial. Given that... um, given that there was enough evidence to say someone else was guilty and that Dreyfus 
had really no nothing to do with the passing of secrets to Germany. The goal was to have a new trial. Hubert Henry, who was the guy who swore at the first trial that there was a secret informant, and he swore on his honor and story, and was staring at Jesus. He was found to have forged evidence, and that he lied to the court. So, if we're undermining the basis for the original conviction, then a new trial is merited. Zola was proven right. Henry was about to be arrested for perjury when he committed suicide. But what happens to someone who dies in the cause of injuring the honor of a Jew? They become what? They become a martyr to the cause, a hero for the anti-Semitic movement. So Hubert Henry is one of the earliest of the anti-Semitic martyrs, a hero for the cause of Jew hatred. It's been a while since read it years ago, but he does name specific names, I think, in his article in Jacques. Yes, yes. Uh, are these some of the names that you're bringing up? Yes, yes, yes. Now, people said that Henry did not commit suicide. Jews killed him. <laughs> ah, so now, so now, there are two competing theories as to what happened. He really did commit suicide, or so the scholars think, the historians think. But at the time, two competing theories emerged. One was by the anti-Semites who said the Jewish syndicate murdered him. You know, Jewish murder incorporated type of thing. However, supporters of Dreyfus, including Jewish supporters of Dreyfus, also speculated that he did not commit suicide but rather that the military murdered him because he knew too much. He knew too much. Okay. Now, what happens to Esther Hatzi? Esther Hatzi, who was, who was found not guilty, but now everybody knows is guilty as sin and is, owes money all around town, and that kind of character, he flees to England. How was it? No, no. So Picard was sent to North Africa and then was brought back and arrested and spent a brief time in prison, would later be given amnesty. But Esterhazy, who was exonerated, flees to England in late 1898 because there was a military trial. The military was was in cahoots to, to let him go. Had it been a civilian trial, he probably would have been convicted. Okay, so when he gets to England, he admits, yeah. I wrote the original memo, but he's in England, England. kind of like Judah P. Benjamin, you know, when you're, when the going gets tough, you go to England. Um, But, but, but there's a caveat. He says, I wrote it, but not because I am a Benedict Arnold type. No, 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 no. I wrote it at the behest of the general staff as part of a counter espionage campaign. How convenient, how convenient. Okay. Now, As I said, every piece of information is always picked apart and either accepted if it fits your narrative or rejected if it goes against your narrative. So the anti-Dreyfusards, how do they react to Esther Hatzi from London saying, yeah, I wrote it, but I did it for good reason? So so the anti-Dreyfusards would say, yeah, the Jews paid him to say it. The Jews paid him to say it. Okay. Um, Dreyfus was brought back from Devil's Island, much to his own surprise. But what are you doing? Why am I going back to, to France? The answer is for another military trial. 
But again, it's a military trial. So that doesn't bode so well for him. Had it been a civilian trial, he probably would have been okay. But military, well, we'll see. The, the evidence is all in his favor, but you never know. The military has an axe to grind and has been out to get him from the beginning. So to the surprise of many, he was again convicted. But this time it was not unanimous. This time the vote was five to two. Interestingly, in the French military code of justice, the, law, the rule is, like in the Talmud, in Masech the Sanhedrin, What's the halacha if, if you're convicted by a vote of 36 to 35 in, in Dine Nefashos? Formal coalition. Uh, it doesn't count. You have to have a majority of two. So that's why, in, or, or based on of, Esrin of, Vishlosha, of, of you can't have a 12 to 11 conviction. It's got to be 13 to 10 in Okay, so four to three would have given him an acquittal. And it was four to two, and the last judge was wavering, and then he went guilty. So it meant five to two. So by the by one vote, like Andrew Johnson in his impeachment, okay, uh, Dreyfus was found guilty again. Well, what's the sentence going to be this time? So the sentence this time was not life imprisonment on Devil's Island. It was a conviction with extenuating circumstances, like like an asterisk, you know, it's like Roger Maris' 61 home runs with an asterisk, okay? Extenuating circumstances, 10 years hard labor. Now, 10 years hard labor for a guy who's been bludgeoned for the last five years, it would have killed him. But good news is, the very next day, he's pardoned. The French president pardons him. He doesn't want this case to spiral out of control because France in 1900 was hosting some sort of World's Fair or like centennial exhibition of some kind, and they needed to just get this off the newspapers already. Okay, so in November... Meantime, meantime, was squeeze itself out of a tight spot. Correct, correct, correct. Now, one of the reasons why Dreyfus uh, was convicted, aside from the fact that the deck was stacked against him because it was a military court, his lawyers, he had two lawyers. One was an aggressive type who wanted to go after the real culprits and use the trial as a platform to find somebody else guilty. And another was a more uh, restrained uh, type, uh, didn't want, not, not want to play the role of Maverick, just wanted to get his client off the hook. And this uh, competing uh, strategy, a conflicted strategy, did not work out well for Dreyfus. It also didn't help that one of the two attorneys, the one who was the more aggressive type, was shot in the middle of the trial and injured, but not, not fatally uh, injured, and, and lost two weeks of work and missed out on some, some trial prep. Uh, but that's not the last of all the shootings involved in all this. We'll see. There, there's more death and, and mayhem. Okay, so um, many Dreyfusards were disappointed in November of 1899 by a bill that was passed by the government to give amnesty to all the parties involved in the Dreyfus affair, except for Dreyfus. Now, Dreyfus himself did not want amnesty. Dreyfus himself wanted that his pardon should eventually be replaced with a full exoneration, a full acquittal, which would eventually happen in 1906. That's seven years away. So the law did not include him, it included everyone else, everyone else. And the Dreyfusards say, that's terrible. 
It means the real bad guys get off the hook. We wanted them to pay the price in a court and be convicted under the rule of law. Okay. Um, so what happens? Now, just as an aside, we couldn't go a whole night about Dreyfus without mentioning Herzl. When we discussed Herzl at length in the course on Zionism, I said that, you know, in the popular imagination, Herzl's coverage for the, for, for the Vienna Free Press, uh, for the new free press of, of Vienna, led him to Zionism. That was many, one of several factors. Herzl was moving towards uh, a solution to the Jewish problem already from the late 1880s, well before the Dreyfus case. But it is true that Herzl's eyewitnessing of the trial uh, did help him push him over the edge towards writing Der Judenstadt. And there's a direct quote, which I have for you, from Herzl to this effect, which we might as well cite tonight, better now than never, here. So he writes, the Jewish question still exists. It would be foolish to deny it. It exists wherever Jews live in perceptible numbers. Where it does not yet exist, it will be brought by Jews in the course of their migrations. In other words, either you have a Jewish problem or you're going to have a Jewish problem. We naturally move to those places where we are not persecuted, and there our presence soon produces persecution. This is true in every country and will remain true even in those most highly civilized. France itself is no exception until the, till the Jewish question finds a solution on a political basis. So he throws in, yeah, I was there in France, even in France, the place where it should have been least likely because emancipation was 100 years old and it happened there too. Yeah, getting Yeah. This is a worldwide world story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. For the Jewish, for the Jewish world, this is a plugged in. The, 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 the Jewish world was very much plugged into this, just as they would be plugged into the Bayless trial uh, a decade and a half later. Okay. Now, Zola died on uh, September 29th. 1902. So in the chat, someone says that Zola was shot. Zola was was not shot. Zola was died of smoke inhalation. But what really happened? Uh, a roofer in 1953, so 1953, remember, we're talking about 1894, 1953, a roofer on his deathbed confessed, I blocked the, the chimney. So the smoke, the carbon monoxide would stay in his house and kill him. And the wife almost died. He died. The wife almost died. Okay. So um, Zola was shot early, but I'm saying he, he, was, he didn't die of a, of, a, of a gunshot wound. He died of a smoke inhalation. So in 1950, yeah, Dreyfus was fully rehabilitated in 1906. Why did this happen? Well. The time had come. The political circumstances allowed for it. So he was reinstated in the army, but at what rank? So he had been a captain, but had his career been allowed to progress in the ordinary course, he would have been a much higher rank. So they let him be a, a, a major. They let him be a, a, an artillery major. But he didn't, he didn't find military life so suitable for him anymore. And there were problems. There were there was some some snarky comments, or worse. So he retired a year later in 1907. Then in 1908, back to Zola, 
Zola's ashes were being moved to the Pantheon. And there was a ceremony for the removal of the ashes, you know, from wherever he was buried to the Pantheon. And Dreyfus showed up, you know, out of respect for the man who wrote the Jacques and was his big defender. And somebody shoots Dreyfus at the ceremony. Dreyfus was injured, not terribly, but he was injured. And the, the would-be assassin goes on trial. And what happens to the would-be assassin? Acquitted. acquitted. Of course, acquitted. Okay. So in World War I, uh, Dreyfus came back to the military because he was a reserve officer after he retired. And he, uh, he served from 1914 to 1918. And he saw combat in 1917. Uh, his son also served and was given... In 1914, he would have been 55. Okay, so he saw action. His son saw action in the war. His son was, a de- was, was decorated as something of a war hero. His nephews, his brother Matthew's sons, two of them, were artillery officers and died in battle. So here this family is fighting for France against Germany and shedding blood for the sake of the land that they, for which they are very patriotic. Dreyfus ended his career as a colonel. So he, he continues you know, to live a relatively quiet life and dies in 1935. Again, one of those people who long outlive the years when they were famous. What happened to Esther Hatzi? He continued to live in London and died in the 1920s. Um, the Vichy regime arguably is a continuation of the government slash military hostility to Jews. That yes, the French Republic was supposed to be good to the Jews and the Dreyfus story ends reasonably well after a lot of ugly moments, but French society has its anti-Semitic component and the government and the military most certainly do which makes the collaboration of the Vichy regime with the Nazi persecution of French Jews not all that surprising. Social anti-Semitism was on the rise in France in this... Well, by by the time the World War II rolls around, there's about 350,000 Jews in France, or 315,000. Social anti-Semitism is on the rise. Drumont in 1886... The Panama Canal scandal in 1892, which we could have spent some time on, but I chose not to. That's where the French company was supposed to build the Panama Canal, and it went bust. Uh, kind of like the episode uh, with with, with and the uh, in Germany with the with the railroads in Romania. That these major public work, works projects often had either Jewish promoters or Jewish bankers or some Jew involved, and when it goes belly up, it's easy to blame them. And then the Dreyfus affair. So the French public was being consistently exposed to an accusation of some, you know, nefarious behavior by some high-level Jew. It became tempting to fall into the sway and become an anti-Dreyfusard, to become, uh, you know, a casual anti-Semite. What about in the long run? So, yes, Dreyfus was exonerated, and the French state, in the post-war era, tended to view the Dreyfus episode as a mark against it, not a proud moment. But there are politicians who um, 
who do not accept the idea that it is absolutely true that Dreyfus was innocent. So, for example, in the last few decades, the right-winger, Jean-Marie Le Pen, what does he have to say? He doesn't like Jews. You know, he was pro-Holocaust. So he says, it was a miscarriage of justice to exonerate Dreyfus, that he was really guilty of sin, and the system failed us. And more recently, Eric Zemmour, who was running for the presidency of France and is a Jew, says it's far from clear that Dreyfus was innocent. He might have been guilty. So it's apparent that if you want to build up your bona fides as a right-winger, as a, a nationalist populist, what's your go-to line? Dreyfus was guilty. Even 120 years later, Dreyfus was guilty. That's the line, the anti-Semitic line of choice. Okay, I'll take some questions uh, from folks at home. Unmute. Allow participants to unmute. Okay, you want to unmute? You can unmute. Nobody? Yes, no? Well, does today's anti-Semitism in France is that like just a through line or because also because Muslims came in? Well, there's a there's a, an element of right wing uh, traditional anti-Semitism that, you know, you could run a straight line through the Dreyfus affair to Vichy to the contemporary times. But that's not, you know, the uh, the type of anti-Semitism that's most likely to carry out violent attacks, uh, murderous assaults. That's more likely to be. And, you know, Muslim, anti, Muslim, Muslim terrorism, Muslim anti-Semitism, uh, and that's that was the case in Hypercaché and other episodes of the last few decades. Anybody else? Does the crime of passion and the woman being thrown out of the um, the balcony in France is that yeah. the same thing tied together? That wasn't passion. Well, it was Triori, and they said that he was. Uh, he was. They said he was on drugs, right? They said he was crazy. Uh, I, I don't. That was not a crime of passion. But but the, uh, the 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 French have a tendency to find some exculpatory theory behind a crime or a supposed crime that involves violence towards a Jew, whether it was mental mentally unstable. Uh, the, the use of uh, hallucinogenics, whatever it might be, if a Jew gets killed, there's always some alternative theory rather than just criminal anti-Semitism. Rabbi? Yeah. Tina? Do you hear yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear uh, you. You hear me? Okay. Wasn't there um, one of the, the, uh, the evidence that uh, Picard uncovered was that the handwriting was different. It was yes, 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 it, and, and so a pretty damning piece of evidence. Okay, that so the already already in the original trial, it was obvious that the handwriting was was a was a problem, and they brought in a supposed expert who it turned out was not even an expert at all in handwriting, and they relied upon his say so. Uh, it was absurd. The, the man was was. Testifying about something which he had no no professional expertise, they they developed a theory of the auto forgery. What's the auto forgery? 
that a person wrote it themselves, but uh, intentionally manipulated their handwriting to make it look like it wasn't them. Mm. Uh, which, you know, yes, in theory could happen, but in this particular case was uh, so illogical. Um, yeah, the handwriting was, was a problem in the 1894 trial. It was a, 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 an issue that emerged in 1896 when exculpatory evidence was, was emerging under the, the new investigation. The military did not want that to be a known quantity in the second trial in 1899, and they convicted again. I find it interesting that even that, that he wanted to go back into the army. I mean, if that, that he was so, still so pro-army, pro-France, pro- well, let, let's, let's, yeah, that's, that's an important point. That, that's did. an important point. Okay, yeah. so I, I, and, and with this, I'm going to close because I want to spend a minute to explain my theory on this. Okay. Um, what? Na- nowadays, nowadays, the, the tendency is to think that um, if a country in the diaspora in which a Jew lives and was patriotic and gung-ho about serving that country, if that country were then to stab you in the back or wrong you in this or that way, you would then recognize like sort of the error of your ways of being patriotic about a Chutzlaharitz country and your Zionism would be uh, all of a sudden exploding out of your kishkas and you'd move to Israel and make Aliyah. That's you know, something that people think about in the here and now, or maybe the last few decades. But there is no Israel back then. There is no Zionism back then. There's just Jews living in various host countries and people who, in the generation or two after the emancipation, felt very strongly about their association with this country, wanted to prove their, their worth and what they could give to the country of their citizenship. And even if that country wrongs them, it's only because, well, some people were acting, uh, you know, out of turn or in a malicious way, but that the institutions are bigger than any one person and that the country is bigger than any one institution. And my loyalty is still towards that country. So I could understand Dreyfus going back into the military. It was his life's dream. It was disrupted in 12 years of, of hell, but... Uh, it, it doesn't have to change his broader psyche. It, th- that was then. This is now. Today, we would consider a person Meshuga for not running away forever and finding a new life for themselves. Okay, we'll stop here. Next time, we're going to get into czarist anti-Semitism. It's going to take us a few weeks because we're going to go from the beginning of Russian opposition to have a Jewish presence in their country to the 19th century and the various persecutions, Cantonist system, etc., and then the liberal phase, and then all hell breaks loose in 1881. So we've covered some of this stuff in prior years, a little bit in the Zionism course, and a little bit even like seven, eight years ago with one of the other courses. But uh, I want to give an overview of the Tsarist period until we eventually get to Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And we'll do a little bit of Bayless, but it's going to take us a couple of weeks to do that. Okay, guys, everybody have a good night.